God's wrath. And we looked last week at verses 1 to 4, so I want to begin at verse 5. We're actually going to survey uh, the last part of chapter 15, beginning at verse 5, all the way through chapter 16 tonight. But I won't read the whole of 16 because I'll dip into it here and there as needed. Revelation 15, 5, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven plagues, given to the seven angels, and then we find, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 16, the first Angel pours out his bowl, and then you find it subsequently all the way to the 7th in verse 17. So verses 1 to 4, basically, with the exception of verse 1, describe the redeemed people of God singing the song of Moses and the Lamb in heaven. So from the vantage point of John, he's saying your loved ones who've died in Jesus, they're right now before the throne of God praising the Lamb. And they're singing a song of redemption. And then in verses 5 to 8 and all of chapter 16, we find the focus taken from heaven and put back on earth. Well, it actually starts in heaven But then we find that the wrath that's attributed from heaven, that comes from heaven, is poured out on the earth. So focus, largely speaking, at verse 5 and following, is turned from heaven to earth. In other words, the pouring out of the bowls of wrath on earth take place at the same time that the saints who died in Jesus are in heaven praising God. So we'll see that the seventh plague or the seventh bull does speak specifically of that final day of judgment. But the other six are just describing what's taking place on earth between Jesus first and second comings. While those who die in Jesus, those perfected saints who are before the throne, praise God in heaven and sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. So just have to keep in mind that there's something going on in this passage in chapters 15 and 16 as the previous cycles. There's something going on in heaven and there's something going on on earth simultaneously, right? Simultaneously. So specifically, the first six bulls are just descriptive of God's present judgments upon the earth for the sins of men. And we're going to see the seventh bowl at the end of chapter 16 specifically speaks of the second coming of Jesus and the destruction of the world. And then we'll see God willing in chapter 17, 18 and 19, the same thing repeated for the sixth time. And then the final one is Revelation 20 to 22. All right. So we find a few things and let me just uh, perhaps summarize Uh, Most of what's found in chapter 16, I can get it from the end of 15. So we're going to focus mostly on those few verses at the end of 15, though dipping down into 16 as need be. All right. So notice the wrath of God. This this passage speaks of the wrath of God on earth. It comes from heaven. That's the source of it. But it comes 
upon earth. And so I want to, first of all, point out the nature of wrath. And then secondly, the source of wrath. And there we'll see that it comes from heaven, from God. It's the wrath of God. And then the varied responses or the responses to wrath. And we're going to see that those, again, are twofold. All right, notice first the nature of wrath. Verse 1, chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Twice in verse 1 and then in verses 6 and 7, God's wrath is described as plagues. I said last week the reason being John has in mind those ten plagues that fell upon Egypt. Thus, if we were to consider the seven plagues, and we will here in a minute, we would find profound similarity between them and the ten plagues of Egypt. In chapter 16, verse 2, the first angel and the first bull of wrath, we find loathsome sores. That was one of the ten plagues uh, poured out on Egypt. In verse 3 of chapter 16, the second bowl is the sea turned into blood. And then verse 4, the third one, the rivers turned into blood. So the waters contaminated by blood. Again, that was one of the ten plagues upon Egypt. In verses 8 and 9, you have great heat and fire. And then verse 10 and 11, darkness. That again was another one. Frogs in verses 12 to 14. That's the sixth angel and bowl. And then the seventh one, verse 17 to 21, is hail. There's some other stuff going on there. But you find at least out of those seven, six of them are found back in in the uh, earlier chapters of Exodus. Well, in fact, I could really, in some sense, stretch. I don't think it's too much of a stretch. But I, can, I could argue, if we had the time, we find all seven of these plagues here in chapter 16 of Revelation back in those earlier chapters of uh, Exodus. So we find that uh, there's obviously, if you go back to Exodus, at least three additional plagues that you don't find here in, in uh, Revelation 16. There was the lice, the flies, and the pestilence. But all the other, we find them here. It's obvious, isn't it, brethren, that uh, John has in mind this former judgment of God upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This destruction of God upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians served as the grand prototype of the redemption of God's people. And that's why the people of God are singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. They're singing the song of redemption. But furthermore, we find that um, these seven plagues or bowls of wrath are identical, one for one, with the seven trumpets that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation. And that, of course, goes back to chapters 8 to 11. They're identical. They're exactly the same. Why is it that the seven bulls or the seven plagues, let's, let's call them plagues, they're, they're plagues which are the wrath of God, the seven bulls or the seven plagues, 
Why are they identical to the trumpets and very similar to the seven seals that went before, but because they describe the same things? The wrath of God that comes upon the world for its rebellion between the times of Jesus' first and second comings. So it's important to keep in mind, brethren, that specifically and especially the first six plagues are happening now. Now they're going to come to a head when Jesus comes back, and that's going to be summarized in the seventh bowl or seventh plague. But nevertheless, these are things happening now. Now, remember that John identifies these plagues because he wants us to think back to Exodus as the wrath of God. And remember what Paul wrote in Romans 1 and verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now just keep in mind that statement. The wrath of God, Paul wrote, Romans 1.18, is presently being revealed from heaven. Then he goes on to say that this wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How is it that God's wrath is presently poured out from heaven, is made known from heaven upon the sons of men, upon the wicked descendants of Adam, now on earth, but by way of these six and then seven plagues. So the plagues here in chapter 16 are nothing more than the expression of the wrath of God presently poured out in the world. Now, what I want to do then is to limit our consideration just for the sake of time and because there's so much repetition, in the, especially in the first five plagues. As I've said, we've already seen them back under the trumpets and many of them under the seals. I just want to limit our time here to the sixth and seventh plagues which are given the lengthiest treatment. So if you look at uh, verse 12, we find the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Then you have something of an aside here. We'll come back to verse 15 in a moment. And then verse 16. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now what we find here in the sixth plague is largely spiritual affliction, whereas in the previous five plagues, it was physical affliction. And uh, we will go back to see some of those plagues here in a moment. But the first five plagues, as we'll see, largely have to do with physical affliction. God is now afflicting the wicked physically as an expression of his wrath. But in the sixth plague, we find that it's predominantly spiritual affliction or perhaps deception. Because we find three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth. Verse 13, notice of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. 
Now we saw those, if you remember, in the previous cycle, in, verse, in chapters 12 to 14. And we saw that the two beasts, here identified as the beast and the false prophet, were influenced or controlled by the dragon, who's Satan. Brethren, these are demons, unclean spirits, demons who are controlled by Satan himself. And so the dragon is Satan. The first beast is, if you remember when we saw back in chapter 13, political, Satan's political influence upon the world. And then the false prophet is his spiritual influence upon the world. And then they're identified as spirits of demons performing signs which deceive all men on earth. That is, as we'll see, all unsaved people on the earth, starting with kings to the whole of the earth. And the deception lost native and foolish man to rebel against God, right? To gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Okay, so we go back to a couple thousand years to John's day when he's writing this letter. And uh, these unclean spirits, these demons were already in the world. Dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And they were already deceiving people. And they were already exciting people to rebel against God. And that's going to take place all the way to the very end when Jesus comes back. It's, that day is called at the end of 14, that great day of God Almighty. So... While this sixth plague and these spiritual demons were already in the world in John's day, he does fast forward, doesn't he, all the way to the last day that he calls in verse 16. A, uh, in he, uh, and they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now, you probably know that a lot of people have taken this term Armageddon and have run with it. And the problem with uh, the term is, is that you don't find it anywhere else in the Bible. But the word itself literally means hill of Magadu. Magadu, M-E-G-I-D-D-O, if you Google that on your phone later, or look up in your hardback concordance, if you still have one of those, you'll find that it's used probably ten times in the Old Testament. And it's a valley in the Old Testament. It's a plain, actually. It's a big field in the Old Testament near the Mount uh, of Carmel where there were many very important battles won and lost. It was a place of great battles. And so what I think John is here doing is simply utilizing that imagery to say that this is the last final great battle between God and his enemies. It's not literally going to take place in the place that this plane was found. It's just talking about this whole world. When Jesus comes back, he's going to destroy the whole of mankind lost, brethren. Don't think of this as if it's going to be some literal battle that's going to string out maybe over hours and days, or it's going to get real close. 
This is a close battle. The wicked are fighting and Jesus is fighting. And no, no, no. Jesus comes back and it's over. That, that's, that's what happens. It, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable though, isn't it? The deception. Because Satan and this world have deceived the minds of lost men to rebel against God to the very end. That's the point. Now, in fact, you actually have um, Jesus talks of this in many places, like in Matthew 24 and 25. He talks about how there's going to be deceivers and they're going to deceive people in rebelling against God. And Paul talks about it in uh, 2 Timothy 3 and other places. But I want to turn it to just one place where you find it, I think, most concisely. And that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, if you remember, there's, uh, there's some difficulties in this chapter. If you remember from our uh, survey of it in Sunday school class some months ago. Well, let me just put it very simply. Chapter 2 is talking about Jesus coming. Verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, we ask you. Remember, there was a lot of confusion concerning the second coming and Paul sorting it out. And he talks about the end. When Jesus comes back, he says in verse 8, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now this is actually a, a, a literal person, or it's just a figurative way of speaking about the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Either way, the point being, there's coming a time when this is all going to come to a head. Verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders, right? It sounds like those unclean spirits or those demons back in um, Revelation 16 that come out of the mouth of the, of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And with all unrighteousness, all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in righteousness. Brother, this is another way of describing the very same event that's spoken of in Revelation 16 as the battle of Armageddon. But the thing here is, notice there's satanic influence, right? And there's deception and lies. But notice God is the one who sits as sovereign over the whole thing. Go back to in your mind to, to Revelation 16. Where do all these judgments or these plagues come from ultimately? Well, we're going to see they come from heaven. They come from God. So God is using, isn't he? He's using the devil to achieve his ultimate and sovereign purpose. But the responsibility is placed upon man. Man is willfully deceived by Satan. And man willfully fights against God. And brethren, man will of certainty lose. Can you think of it for a minute? How foolish man is. How deceiving Satan is. How deceiving this world is. But how foolish is man to believe the lie that he can fight against God and win? Brother, how can man fight against God and win? His arms are too short. They don't even reach into the heavens. 
And when Jesus comes back, he's going to slay them with the word of his mouth. So the sixth plague fundamentally concerns satanic deception and oppression. And keep in mind, brethren, this is taking place now. Satan now, the uh, dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are at work in this world deceiving people. Deceiving people. Encouraging them to believe the lie. And at the heart of the lie is you don't have to bow to God or to put it in the way in which he couched it to our first parents, you can become gods. That's really at the heart of the lie. All right, that's the sixth plague. But notice in Revelation 16, beginning at verse 17, the seventh plague. Now, the seventh bowl of wrath includes a great earthquake that divides the great city. This great city is identified as Great Babylon. That's in uh, verse 19, which, of course, is symbolic for the enemy of God and refers to this whole world. Now, John is going to pick back up on this, isn't he, in the next cycle. In chapter 17, 18, and 19, we're going to see that this whole world is identified as the great harlot or Babylon. Um, this phrase, uh, great Babylon, in verse 19, is used only one time in our Bibles. Uh, outside of here, and that's back in uh, Daniel 4. Look at uh, that very quickly. Look at verse 30. Daniel 4. If you remember, beginning at verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen, and he's speaking to Daniel, and Daniel interprets the dream for him. And then he exhorts him to be wise in light of the doom that the, that the dream foretold, that his own destruction. Therefore, O king, verse 27, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity, right? That's David's application, having interpreted the dream. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, who of course was the king of Babylon. At the, end of the, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Verse 30, the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And verse 31, while the word was yet in his mouth, all that was foretold came to pass concerning Nebuchadnezzar. And eventually the uh, Medes and Persians, as you know, would defeat uh, the Babylonians and would destroy them. So you have here the king of Babylon, just a shadow of Satan himself. And uh, you have him boasting over his great empire, the great city. And we find in Revelation 16, verse 19 and following, the end of this great Babylon, this great city. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. 
Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail, this is at the heart of the seventh uh, plague. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. And that's how the seventh, seventh plague ends. And God willing, we'll see uh, next week, Lord willing, in chapter 17, that the cycle starts over again. All right, so that was the nature of wrath. It's in seven plagues. And notice more shortly, or quickly, the source of it in uh, verses 5 to 8 of chapter 15. We have seven angels described as having the seven plagues coming from the temple. And uh, those plagues, again, are referred to as the wrath of God. Now, the term wrath of God means wrath that comes from God. And wrath, of course, is simply defined as Anger aroused or anger manifested. Right? The scriptures sometimes talk about the anger of God, and we distinguish that from the wrath of God as wrath is anger expressed. Right? God is angry with sinners, and now that anger has, quote, boiled over into wrath. Wrath is nothing less than the felt experience of God's anger. And so we learn that God is pouring out his anger or his wrath. He's making his anger known by way of wrath upon his enemies, even now in those six ways and will express it in the fullest way when he comes back in the seventh way or in the seventh plague or seventh bowl. Now, verse 5 has an interesting expression in, in verse 15, or I'm sorry, in chapter 15, verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony of heaven was opened. Now, the temple is called the tabernacle of the testimony, as it is throughout the Old Testament in at least 12 places. In other words, it was the place, the temple and tabernacle, that housed his testimony in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, of course, by testimony, or thus by way, uh, uh, by testimony is meant the Ten Commandments that were a testimony of God's just and holy character. And so here's the imagery. God's wrath is being poured out upon a world because of their sin, right? Because what is sin? It's the violation of God's holy law. Brother, I just wish people would get that. That's, that's a very important, simple definition of sin. The New Testament, John elsewhere actually identifies or describes sin as lawlessness. This is why God's wrath is coming upon the earth. It's not coming upon the earth because people didn't believe in Jesus though that's true 
But even if they never heard of Jesus, this wrath is coming upon them because they're sinners. Brethren, fundamentally, this is why God's wrath is coming upon the world. This is why God's wrath is right now in this world, because of sin. And yes, if a person hears the gospel, as we were reminded in Sunday school class last, and rejects it, he's doubly guilty, and he's worthy of double wrath. But even if he's never heard of Jesus and never heard the gospel, he's guilty before God because of his sin. And again, even if he's never heard of the Ten Commandments, he has the echo or the shadow of them in his heart, right? And that's why Paul says in Romans 2 that if you, that if you sin against the law, you'll be judged by the law. If you sin without the law, you'll be judged without the law. In other words, if you have the Ten Commandments and thus you have more light and more knowledge of what God expects of you, you'll be judged more severely. If you've never heard of the Ten Commandments, you'll be judged less severely, but judged you'll be. And the reason why you'll be judged is because of sin, brethren. This is why God's wrath is poured out upon the earth because of man's sin or his transgression against the Ten Commandments. All ten of the Ten Commandments, not six, eight, or nine of them. The testimony. It's called the testimony, brother. Why is it the testimony? Why is the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant called the testimony? Because it testifies of God's moral character. And that's why we typically speak of the Ten Commandments as moral law. It's the reflection of God's just and holy character. And that just and holy character of God is in man by way of creation. That's called the image of man. What does it mean when it says that God made man in his image? Well, in part, in no small part, it means man is made as a moral creature. In other words, he has the echo or the shadow of that law within his conscience. <clears throat> Brother, to be honest, I just don't understand why so many professing Christians today don't believe we're to obey the Ten Commandments. It just goes over my head. Here the world is being judged because they're not keeping the Ten Commandments. This is the whole reason why the plagues are poured out upon the earth. It's because... They're not obeying God. In contrast to this, brethren, you know that Christians have the law rewritten in their hearts when they're converted, when they're born again. And this means we love the law and we have the Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us to obey it in its totality. All ten commandments. And so wrath is being poured out upon earth right now from heaven because man by nature hates the testimony of God. And because God is just and holy, he's angry with man and that anger boils over or is expressed as wrath. Brother, wrath is, is real and it's present and it's just, and it's forthcoming. There's more to come when Jesus comes back.
All right, so this is the source of it. That brings me finally to the responses to it. And here I want to point out there's fundamentally two responses to the seven plagues. The first is the wicked blaspheme, and secondly, the righteous watch. All right, notice first, the wicked blaspheme. The result of the plagues or of God's wrath is that man by nature blasphemes God and refuses to repent. You're going to find it in, in association to several, at least three of the seven, three or four of the seven plagues. For example, in chapter 16, verse 9, and men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent or give him glory. Verse 11, they, with respect to the fifth commandment, that, or the, uh, that was a fourth angel, fourth plague. This is the fifth one, verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. And then you have it in, in relation to the uh, seventh in verse 21. And great hell from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. In other words, far from humbling man and causing him to repent from his sin, these plagues harden man and cause him to speak evil of God. Right? That's what it means to blaspheme. What a tragic thought. And so we have to keep this in mind, brethren, that these judgments of God, these plagues of God, are not intended to convert man. Now, it is true that God sometimes uses hardships and afflictions to soften the heart and to bring his people to himself. That's true. But remember, these are people who have the mark of the beast. These are not elect people. And these plagues or afflictions are punitive. They're the expression of wrath. They're, to use the distinction from last Sunday morning, they're intended to punish And so native, wicked man hates God and he speaks evil of God when he experiences the wrath of God. Now we find out, don't we, here just how wicked native man is and how hard his heart is. And so we have to keep in mind, while all men suffer in this world, not all men suffer alike in this world. These plagues, you have to put it like this. These plagues do not befall the people of God. That's not to say that we don't endure hardships, but we don't endure these plagues or the wrath of God. Brethren, God's people, they endure hardships that on the, out, on the outside look similar to the same things that the wicked experience. But they're altogether different. Because remember, God doesn't send them in order to punish us, but to correct us. So they're not expressions of his wrath, but actually his love. 
But that's not so for the reprobate. These various physical afflictions, sicknesses, and spiritual torments are all expressions of divine wrath. That's, I think, very evident. I hope it's evident in the passage. And yet, instead of being humbled by these afflictions, they blaspheme God and refuse to repent. Now, sometimes you find this in the most gross examples of someone who goes to their grave in defiance to God because of some tragedy they experience in their life. I'm not saying that it's always like so clearly expressed like that, but we've all known an auntie or an uncle or somebody who went to their grave shaking their fist in the face of God because they took a child or they took a spouse or they did this or, or God did this or that. But what you find in, the gross, in, in those gross examples, you find in the heart of all men in some sense who experience these plagues as judgments from God and they refuse to repent from their sins and they instead speak evil of God. Brother, just stop and think about how this passage portrays native man left to himself. He's a very evil and wicked creature. That's how the wicked respond to these plagues. But secondly, the righteous watch. Now keep in mind that these plagues don't fall upon the righteous. But they fall upon the wicked who are in the same world that we are. And that's why you have that aside in verse 15, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. In other words, Jesus is saying you're living in the same world with the wicked, even though you're not experiencing these plagues as the wicked. But nevertheless, the fact that the wicked are experiencing these plagues and the fact that I'm, that you have to endure through a world that hates me and thus hates you. He gives them these exhortations. Okay, so remember what Jesus said in, in John's Gospel. If the world hated me, it will hate you also. When the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And so, remember that this statement, verse 15, is in the context of the sixth plague. And satanic... Um, uh, opposition and the fact that Satan, the beast, and the false prophet have excited mankind to fight against God. Okay? So if Satan, the beast, and the false prophet have excited native man to fight against God, what does that say about God's people? It means that, that God's people, too, are the objects of man's hatred. So while we don't experience the plagues, we do have to endure through a world that is in opposition to God and to God's people. And that's why you have this wonderful little aside in verse 15. And I want to suggest, in closing, 
that verse 15 fundamentally has a couple parts. There's a benediction and a motivation. A benediction, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment. That's a benediction. And then a motivation, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. All right, notice a benediction. And the benediction really has a couple parts to it. Let me suggest three. It describes that person in a threefold way who is the recipient of God's divine blessing. Or put another way, it describes in a threefold way a Christian. First, Christians wait for Christ's return. This means we must believe and long for Jesus' return. This means that we have to anticipate and long for the return of our Savior. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches. So Christians believe in the second coming of Christ, but more than that, they anticipate the Christ of the second coming. Brethren, it's really easy, isn't it? Rather easy to maintain, preach, and defend the second coming of Christ. But it's altogether another thing to anticipate the Christ of the second coming. And this is why in one place we find Christians described as those who love his appearing. We love his appearing. Brother, we have to wait for him in a world that's telling us that we're a bunch of deceived idiots. We, we live in a world that's controlled by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. We live in a world that's in opposition to God and the truth. And in the midst of all of that, we have to wait. And we have to wait for the return of our beloved Savior. That one who would know tonight the benediction, the divine benediction of Revelation 16.15 is one who waits for Christ's return. Secondly, he or she is watching for deception. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches. We must remain alert for false teaching and the deception that comes from Satan, his beast and false prophet. Brethren, simply put, there's lies and there's lies to our left and to our right. And we have to close our ears to the lies and fill them with the truth. I was just counseling with someone not here a few days ago. And this person was telling me that they are so prone to believe lies about themselves and God. And I told them, well, that's Satan's tactics. He's the great liar. Right? That's what he did to our first parents. And that's what he's still doing today. He's... He's telling you lies about yourself. He's telling you lies about God and his word. And when I told that person what that what I said to that person, 
he needed to do, so we find Jesus is telling us all to do, and that is we have to watch. And that in part, brother, it means we have to close our ears to the lies of the enemy and open them to the truth of God's word. How else do we combat the lie but with the truth? So we have to wait, we have to watch, but thirdly, we have to keep our garments. We must keep or guard ourselves pure from the defilement and impurity of this world. Now, by garments are meant our souls and or our lives. It means we have to keep ourselves and our lives pure. And so we have a threefold exhortation, or perhaps better, a threefold description of the one who's the recipient of divine benediction, and that is they wait, they watch, and they keep. They wait, they watch, and keep. All the while in a world that's joined in opposition to God and, to, and his beloved people. And then Jesus ends this verse with a motivation. Last he, that is the person he's talking about, us, walk naked, and they, that is the world, see his shame. Now, such motives or warnings as this have troubled many Christians. Some have concluded that Christians, because of such exhortations or motivations or warnings, can in fact lose their salvation, that a Christian can become a non-Christian. Right? That's what Jesus says. So they say, look, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest, unless, he walk naked and they see his shame. So they say, unless you watch, unless you wait and watch and keep, it's possible that you can lose what you once had. And uh, others who understand the, uh, the wrongness of that perspective have so bled such warnings that they have little meaning to them, right? They say, well, whatever this means, it can't mean what it says because Christians can never become unchristians. But how do we harmonize all of these and explain such exhortive passages or such warning passages? Well, brother, we have to understand that these passages, like verse 15, come to a mixed crowd. They come to the professing people of God, which is always mingled with true and false converts. It is true, brethren, that unless we wait, watch, and keep, we won't go to heaven. But it's also true that everybody who's a Christian of necessity will wait, watch, and keep their garments. And one way in which every Christian will wait, watch, and keep their garments is by taking to heart these texts. Because rightly understood, brethren, these texts ultimately don't drive us to waiting, watching, and keeping, though that's true, it's good but ultimately to the one who will ensure us that we will wait, watch, and keep. 
In other words, brethren, if you're trusting ultimately in your own abilities to wait, watch, and keep, you're going to be most miserable. And if you're fully trusting in yourselves to wait, watch, and keep, you won't go to heaven. Because that's a description of a non-Christian. All Christians wait, watch, and keep. All Christians want to wait, watch, and keep. And all Christians know they desperately need Jesus' help to ensure us that we do, in fact, to the end, wait, watch, and keep. And so to walk naked and be ashamed refers to professing Christians who will be stripped of any affiliation with Jesus in the day of judgment. It's the same thing that we recently read some of us in our Bible reading uh, as found in Matthew 7. Where Jesus speaks of those who say, haven't we done this and that? And he says to them, I've never known you. And then how does he describe them? Depart from me. What does he say of them? You who practice lawlessness. You who from the heart never walked in obedience to my law, as summarily found in the testimony of the Ten Commandments. And so it speaks of them being naked. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God threatened Israel for her idolatrous behavior. And at times, like Ezekiel 16 and a host of other places, he threatens to uncover them or to render them naked. To expose them, their hypocrisy and their idolatry. Thus, these are people who claim to be Christian, but have secretly taken the mark of the beast and worship his idol or his image. Because remember, these plagues fall upon, only fall upon those who've taken the mark of the beast. And so these are people who profess to be Christians, but in the end were not. That is, those whose garments have been removed to expose the nakedness of their shame. But brethren, that's not true, is it, of Christians? Because Christians will of necessity, wait, watch, and keep. And here's why. Because Jesus has promised that all of those who are his, he will keep from the mark of the beast because he's already put his mark on their forehead. Remember what we've been seeing all through the book of Revelation. He sealed them. He knows them. He keeps them. And because of that, they will of certainty wait, watch, and keep. Well, we have a wonderful hymn to close our time together in, and that's 690. 